Good morning. It is good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming and worshiping us with us here at Ivy Creek, both in person and online. We want to welcome all of you, and we are grateful that you are here this morning. If you've got your Bibles with you, and I certainly hope that you do, please take them out and turn with me once again to the book of Psalms, and particularly to Psalm 4. Uh, Psalm 4. We're going to continue in the sermon series that we began a few weeks ago uh, that I entitled Songs from the Heart. And today we are, we've already looked at the first three Psalms. And so today we're going to look at Psalm 4. And I can immediately imagine that some of you are going, hey, are we going to go through all 150 Psalms together? I can assure you that we will not. But I did want to go ahead and, and look at Psalm 4 today, particularly because many are convinced that Psalm 4 kind of uh, is connected to Psalm 3. And, and there, is a, there is a connection there. I think you can see it if you look at Psalm 3. Verse 5, and then you look over at Psalm 4, verse 8, you'll see that, that both of these psalms talk about David being able to rest, being able to sleep in the midst of having trouble in his life. But it's not only just that. Others, there are other scholars who are convinced that, that the trouble that David describes here in Psalm 4 is the same trouble that's described in Psalm 3, where you'll remember from last week we talked about David was fleeing from Absalom, his son, who was attempting to overthrow David from being a king of Israel. And so many would say that the, that the same trouble that David faces here in Psalm 4 is, is that. I, I'm personally not convinced that that is the historical setting of Psalm 4, but this is what I do believe is obvious when you read Psalm 4. And then if you go home and you read Psalm 5 and 6 and 7, what you will recognize quite quickly is that David, like... Every single one of us found himself facing trouble, facing difficulty repeatedly throughout his life. As a matter of fact, you've heard this saying before. I've repeated it often myself. You are, you are either on your way into a storm, you are in a storm right now, or you've just come through one. Every single one of us in this room fit that category. And I believe that David's repeated cries for help that you see in Psalm 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, all of those psalms there remind us that all of us face trouble repeatedly throughout our lives. I've entitled today's sermon, A Psalm for Cramped Spaces. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to that in a minute and kind of explain why I chose that. But the reason, I, the reason I did primarily is because I believe that David clearly saw himself in a tight spot. Um, many of you know what it's like to be in a tight spot. There could be all kinds of reasons that bring you there. Uh, we understand that sometimes it's because we feel like the world's closing in around us. It, we feel like we have nowhere to turn. No options are available in front of us. We just feel like everything is kind of closing in around us. And if you know what that's like, then you know the anxiety that that can produce. You also know how unsettling it can be in your spirit to experience that. And you know how peaceless that can be. So what are you supposed to do when that happens? Because it's going to happen to all of us at some point. What do you do? How should you respond when you feel cramped? When you find yourself in a tight spot? Particularly as we will read this morning from Psalm 4. When you find yourself closed in by those who are opposing you. Well, I believe that we can learn some things from, from David in this psalm. So let's read it together. Psalm 4, you'll see there the superscription 
that's given to us there is the to the chief musician with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Hear me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, Lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, even as I read the words of this passage this morning, there are those in our church family whose names and faces come to mind because I know that they find themselves in some tight spots even now. So Lord, I pray for them. Just as Pastor Ted has already prayed, I prayed for the Wilson family as they're having to come to grips with the fact that their father and grandfather and great-grandfather and friend is no longer with them, so I pray for peace for them and comfort for their hearts. I also pray for the Master's family this morning as Miss Bobby is facing surgery. And, and Lord, I just pray for peace for them. I ask God that you might bring them comfort. I pray, pray for the family of Ray Williams this morning who is also looking and seeing what is going on with his health. And Father has been admitted to the hospital this morning. We just know that the physical conditions of some of the ones and others of which we don't even know all the details of, that they're facing some very difficult times. And Lord, for many, they may feel as if they have very few options and, and that the world is closing in around them. I pray that you might, by your Holy Spirit, bring comfort and peace to their lives, that the truth of that which we have just read would resonate clearly through them by the power of your Holy Spirit. So, Father, I just pray for them specifically. I pray for us, the rest of us who are here this morning, who have our Bibles open in front of us, and we are asking for the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us and to, and to clearly show us what we need to do. And, and, and Lord, that, that the glory of Christ might be made known through your word this morning. I pray these things, and I ask it all for the sake of Jesus. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You'll note that this song, as I this psalm, as I, I read it, it was intended to be sung. I mean, David wrote it, but he submitted it as that superscription is to the chief musician, who was to put it to music, and and that the stringed instruments were to accompany it as the people sung it. And so I believe just that superscription right there alone gives us some information about this psalm that's important. I believe we can derive that the message of this psalm was one that many, not just David, could identify with. And I hope that you will also recognize that this morning. 
that there had been many because after this, this psalm, this psalter was put in place, know that for literally thousands of years, people have sung this psalm because it deals with issues of which all of us are familiar. Now, as I mentioned earlier, some believe that this psalm was written at the same time that Psalm 3 was written when David fled from Absalom, his son. Others, however, point to the fact that the internal evidence of this psalm actually indicates that Israel was experiencing an economic disaster due to a drought, an extended drought that had caused their crops to fail. And as a result, David's spiritual leadership over Israel was being called into question. And to be honest, I believe that there's really good arguments to be made for both sides with regard to what the historical background of the psalm is. But the truth is, we don't know for sure. We cannot know for sure what the historical background is. And maybe that proves to be helpful in the long run because I think it is enough for us to know that David faced some severe opposition to his leadership in Israel. And that there were those that were challenging him. And they were stirring up trouble for him. And that anxiety caused by those circumstances brought him to a place where he didn't feel like he had anywhere else to turn but to the Lord. And it really is that that allows me to, to direct your attention to the first point on your outline. Let me just go ahead and tell you, I was caught up in the seas this week, so you're going to have to just deal with them today. I, I, I alliterated everything, and so it is just what it is. The first point that I want you to note that we learn from verse number one today is this. There is a confident call amid constriction. There is a confident call lifted up to God in the midst of David's constriction. There, there, but what I want you to know is there's a certain boldness that comes across on David's part in the opening verse of this psalm. In fact, one writer I read this week called David Gutsy. He was gutsy because his first words out of his mouth were an imperative. They were a command to God. He says, hear me when I call. The ESV translates it this way. It says, answer me, O Lord. What's obvious is that David wasn't passive in the way that he approached the Lord. He was passionate. He wasn't just offering words to heaven. David wanted God's attention. And in fact, I think it is to God, the fact that it's to God that he cries out is an important point to take note of. See, David wasn't looking in other places he wasn't trying to figure out the answer to this problem in, in, in other areas. He went to God. And, and in his anxiety and in his struggle, he didn't seek answers from sources that were not able to help him. Rather, he went directly to the Lord. And it's evident that David believed that God was able to answer him and to save him from the cramped space in which he found himself. We know that because David boldly and confidently calls out to the God of his righteousness. Notice that there. He calls to the God of his righteousness. It's a very unique way of referring to God. It does not occur very much at all in the Bible. In other words, as the further part of this psalm goes on to tell us, though there were those who opposed David and who persecuted, persecuted him, David confidently calls upon the one who will show him to be right. And he does so with a, a bold expectation that God will hear him and that God will respond with mercy. Now, I mentioned earlier, I've entitled today's sermon, A Psalm for Cramped Spaces, and I've referred to that a, a couple of times. My reasoning specifically for choosing that title 
as the first point makes clear about constriction, is I believe that David is obviously experiencing what it means to be constricted, to find himself in a tight spot. Notice that after he boldly calls upon God, that David recalls his past experiences. He says, you have relieved me in my distress. In other words, David says at some point in the past, and perhaps there were many points in the past, David had found himself in similar trouble. And and in fact, it was God's past deliverances of David that that helped David know this is who I need to call on. This is who God is. This is what God does. But I want you to notice that when he cried out to God, he said God had relieved him in his distress. Note that that word distress there, the Hebrew word from which it's translated literally means this. It means a tight or a narrow or a cramped space. That word distress is what it means. It means to be enclosed in upon. Now, notice also that David says, though, God, you have relieved me from that. If you're looking at the King James Version, you will see that it says, you have enlarged me. And the reason that it's translated that way is because the word that's translated relieved there literally means, God, you've opened up room for me. You have, you've put me out there in open space. I was constricted. The world was closing in around me, but you in your relief of me have opened me up for a wide open space. In fact, that's David's testimony repeatedly throughout the Psalms. You can find it in Psalm 18 verse 19. David writes this. He says, God brought me out into a broad place. And he delivered me because he delighted in me. David also writes in Psalm 31, verses 7 and 8, he says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, same word, and you have not, you, you have not delivered me into the hands of my enemies. You have set my feet in a broad place. David's testimony echoes that which was said of the Lord in Job chapter 35, verse 16, where there Elihu was saying this to Job. He was saying this about God. He says, he woos you from the jaws of distress to a spacious place, free from restriction. You see how that that imagery just continues to, to come through the text. And that was evidently the case here. I want you to know, as I mentioned to you last week, for someone like myself that's claustrophobic and agoraphobic and doesn't like to be constricted in any way, whether it's literally or figuratively, doesn't like that feeling as if the walls are closing in around him. I want you to know that a psalm like this really comes and is encouragement to me. It, it lets me throw my shoulders back and begin to breathe because when life comes in around you and constricts you from all different sides, that's what it does. It stifles you. David says, no, God, you, I've come to you so many times and you've opened up a way for me. You've given me space. You've given me a broad place. You've put my feet in open air. And I want you to know, I think that is quite encouraging. And I think that's evident from what David's saying here in, verse four, in chapter 4, verse 1, that it's a very similar scenario that's facing him in his trouble here. That's why he brings it back up. God, you've done this in the past. Now I'm coming to you because I'm back in the same kind of scenario again. And I believe that's what gives us a strong indication that this is a psalm 
for cramped spaces. Now, I want to just pause for a moment now that we've kind of gotten to the end of Psalm 1 and verse 1 there, Psalm 4, verse 1, and just ask ourselves, what can we learn from this verse? What, what is there that's applicable to us? And I think if you find yourself cramped, if you find yourself trapped, if you feel like you are being constricted, well, I believe that we can learn to do some things just like David did. And that is, first of all, to remind ourselves of the times when God has come and delivered us in the past. Specifically, recall in your life when God has been the one who has brought you relief. When God has come into your life in the midst of the trouble, very similar to what you're facing now, that God was there for you. Because that will build the confidence. Your confidence is in the one who has control over your circumstances and you go to him. And you can go to him with boldness. As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4 verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we have made obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what we must do. Is we turn to the Lord, the one who has delivered us from our distress in times past. So, so that's the first thing that I want us to see from verse 1. It's a confident call amid constriction. But then notice the second point on your outline. The seas just continue. In verses 2 through 5, we see a confronting caution and correction. A confronting caution and correction. You know, it's been my experience, tight spots and cramped spaces can result from a number of different reasons. But sometimes they come as a result of pressure that's being exerted upon us by other people. And that certainly appears to be the case for David here in Psalm 4. You'll notice that in verse 1, David cries out to God. But then here in verse 2, he begins to address his adversaries. In fact, he confronts them. He says, how long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? What becomes clear is that there were there were wicked men, specifically the Hebrew term that David uses there tells us that they were important men who were slandering David. In other words, the tight spot that David found himself in came as a result of influential men who were spreading malicious lies about him. And the, the next line makes it obvious that what his opponents were saying was false because he asked this question, how long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? David's question seems to indicate that he was about to run out of patience with these guys. He, he just about reached the end of his rope with them. They were dragging his name through the mud. They were spreading lies and slandering his reputation. And David's had enough. And so he confronts him and says, how long are you going to keep this up? How long are you going to continue doing this? And then notice that David issues a very strong warning to his opponents. They were attacking him, but then he cautions them by reminding them that God will, will respond to the faithful. He says this, but know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. And the Lord will hear when I call to him. Specifically, as, as James Boyce has put it, David is reminding those who have been dragging his name through the mud that he had become the king of Israel by the sovereign choice of God, not by man's authority. And therefore, he could not be attacked with impunity. 
In fact, because he was the covenant king that God had placed on the throne, then, then David is cautioning those who were aligning themselves against him to remember that he had been set apart, that he was distinct from them. And, and as such, David recognizes that he stands under a special protection of God and that he has a special privilege of approaching God and knowing that God will hear him when he calls on him. Now, when we read that, you may be a little bit like me when I first read it. I'm thinking, well, that's good for David. But I ain't no king. God hasn't put me over the, the throne of Israel. So, I mean, David kind of stands unique, right? But notice this. Dale Ralph Davis has noted this, that David was a covenant one in a premier sense. But though that's the case, that should not prove to discourage us. For in principle, we still stand in David's sandals. He writes this. He says, we may not be covenant kings, but if we are uncondemned, chosen, prayed for, and loved, just as Romans 8 verses 33 and 35 tell us, when we are in Christ, then notice this. That doesn't sound too second class to me, David, Davis writes. In fact, the Lord has said of us, if the Lord has said of us as he did of Jacob in Isaiah 43, verse 1, Fear not, for I have redeemed you, and I have called you by my name, and you are mine. Then let me ask you, if that's been said of you, then why in the world should we ever listen to the blabberings of our enemies? To illustrate that point, Davis recounts a story from a couple hundred years ago when Thomas Jefferson was serving as vice president of the United States. And uh, at that particular point, Jefferson went to a Baltimore hotel room to ask for a room for the night. Um, he was in his working clothes. His, his clothes had been splattered with mud. And so when he arrived there in the, the foyer area to ask the hotel owner, the owner looked at him and was very unimpressed by what he saw and decided that, that he was not someone that he wanted staying in his establishment. And so he looked at Thomas Jefferson. He said, I have no room for you, sir. Jefferson reiterated his question and said, I would like to get a room for the night. And, and once he had been denied a second time, Jefferson left the hotel. And just as he did, another man walked into the lobby of that hotel and approached the owner who looked at him and said, do you know that the man that you just refused to give a room for the night is none other than the vice president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, and the signer of the Declaration of Independence? The hotel owner could not believe it. He was aghast at what he had done. And he had mistakenly thought that Jefferson was no more than just a dirty farmer. Nothing more than just a step above scum, as Davis puts it. But listen, this is what I want you to know. At no point did that hotel owner's misevaluation ever change the fact that that was Thomas Jefferson. Here's something that you and I need to remember. The weapon that you and I have been given against malicious slander directed toward us is to remember who we are in Christ. It is to remember how Christ regards us. And then to hold on tightly to the things that he has said about us. As the Apostle Paul asked this question, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? 
Many may say all kinds of evil against you, but that does not alter the fact that if you are in Christ, you belong to him and you've been set apart. So David has confronted his enemies. He's cautioned them. But then beginning in verse 4, he corrects them as well. Like the New King James, many of your versions may translate this verse there in verse 4 as be angry and do not sin. Others of your translations will read this way, uh, stand in awe or tremble and do not sin. The Hebrew actually allows for that, that verse to go in either direction there. Um, but I believe that to tremble and to stand in awe is, is, is the better translation there and, and from the context. You see, David has just confronted his opponents with the fact that their opposition of him actually has aligned themselves against God. Their, their rebellion against David, David has said, you're actually rebelling against God because I am God's anointed to be the king of Israel. And so consequently, David tells them to consider the overwhelming power of the one that they are up against, to stand in awe of him, to tremble at the power of the one with whom they have aligned themselves. As I said before, contextually, to me, that makes the most sense. And then he follows that command with these words. He says, meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. We might paraphrase David's words this way and say, go lay down on your bed and ponder the situation that you have found yourself in and get right with God. Now, in my mind's eye, I can just sort of see David. He's squared himself up against his opponents and he's pointed his fingers right in their face, the ones who'd been throwing mud at him and discrediting him. And he says, look, you might think that you're fighting me, but you better beware of who your true enemy is. You are cutting down the one whom God has set apart. And as such, what you need to do is to clasp your hands over your mouth and abandon the evil that you are conspiring and planning in your heart. Go lie down on your bed and search your hearts in silence. And after saying that, then in verse 5, we read that David tells them, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Listen, that is nothing short of a call for them to repent and to place their faith in God. We could summarize David's final words to them with just two. He tells them to turn and he tells them to trust. You need to turn from what you're doing and you need to trust in God. Now, in light of how David, we see him respond to his opponents, I believe we ought to ask ourselves once more, how should we respond when we find ourselves in a cramped space, in a tight spot, because there are those that are coming against us and opposing us, many of whom are, are saying false things about us. Well, I like how Daryl Dash has put it. He said, there may come a time for you to be honest with the people in your life who are problems. We may need to call them on their behavior and in the process remind them of who we are in God and call them to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. Certainly this is what I know. The goal of our lives ought to always and in all circumstances be to carry the good news of the gospel to all people. And that even includes those who have set themselves against us and have made themselves our enemies. Those who seek to do us harm we ought to also share the good news of the gospel with them. 
So we may need to confront those who put us in tight spots because of the malicious lies and slander. But listen, we must never miss an opportunity to also point them to their only hope that can only be found through repentance and faith in Christ. So we've, we've heard a confident call amid constriction. We have witnessed a confronting caution and correction. And that leads us to the last point that we see in the last set of C's for the morning. We see a conscious counting on the Lord despite our circumstances. A conscious counting on the Lord despite our circumstances. Now, throughout this psalm, David has made it clear that the Lord is the sovereign rescuing God who has come to his aid in the past and the one to whom he knows he can cry out in the middle of his distress and that God will answer him. And furthermore, David has, has clearly put it to those who have opposed him that God has, has, uh, is the, inim- the inimitable force that they are up against and the one with whom that they must reckon. But now in light of that, In the final three verses, David really contrasts two different ways of of relating to that God. He's he's identified who God is and the character of God and what God does. And now in those final three verses, we see there's a couple of different ways we can relate to God. Let me read those verses for you again, beginning in verse 6. David writes, There are many who say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone O Lord make me dwell in safety did you pick up the two different ways that are there the first one is right there at the very beginning of verse 6 it's evident from the way that the question is asked they say who will show us any good that's, that's the, 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 the question of the people. Who will show us any good? We could probably rephrase it and say this, you know, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Who, who's going to do good for me? And, and unfortunately, there are many people in the world that relate to God just like that. In other words, as long as things are going well for them, they, they, they're okay with God because God's obviously doing good things for them, but you let something come into their lives, something negative, something difficult, hard times come. Well, suddenly things aren't good between them and God anymore. Why? Because what's in it for me? Who's going to do us any good? I get the impression based upon this question that, 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 that's asked there in verse 6 that the people who were asking that question found themselves in a scenario where things weren't good. As the the, the commentators put it that there was a, a drought in the land potentially at that time and their crops weren't producing and so they're crying out. Maybe there's another God out there who will do us some good because the one that we've been worshiping sure isn't helping us during this time and that many would say that lies behind the whole push against David and his spiritual leadership over Israel. Here's the point that I want you to know. All of us can understand that despondency can occur when disease comes, when sickness comes, and when, when disaster hits us, when difficult situations come, we understand what it's like to become despondent. Every single one of us has that nature within us. When trouble comes, when we don't get what we're looking for, there is a temptation to turn from God and to look for satisfaction elsewhere. That's one way 
to relate to God. But there is a second way that this text presents it for us. Notice that there in the last half of verse 6, David once again addresses the Lord, and in doing so, he paraphrases part of the benediction that the Levitical priests would pronounce over Israel in their tabernacle worship. And David, David prays this, Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You see... In contrast to the cynics and in contrast to the complainers whose relationship with God was dependent upon what God did for them, David only asked that the light of the Lord's countenance would rest upon him. He just wanted to reside into the smile of God. And he, he continues that vein there in verse 7 when he says this, You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increase. David is... David is clearly stating that the relationship that he has with God is not based upon his circumstances. It's not based upon whether he had a lot or whether he had a little, but rather on the fact that the Lord had smiled upon him and given him gladness and joy that went deeper than his surroundings. In this verse, David declares his possession of what Dale Ralph Davis has called massive joy. Massive joy. Notice why it's massive. There's four characteristics of it. Don't miss it. It's massive because, number one, it's divine joy. Notice where it came from. He says, you have given me. It came from God. It's divine joy that had been placed. And notice that it's internal joy. You've placed it within me. It's mine. It's my possession. It's inside me. It's not based upon what's outside. It's inside me. And not only that, it's abundant joy. It's more than all of the increases of people's wealth and all of the increases of their grain and their wine. Finally, it's independent. It's not dependent upon the circumstances that David found himself in. It was clearly independent because it had come from God. You know, as I read these words of David, I couldn't help but think of that same massive joy that the Apostle Paul had. It, was a, it too is a divine and internal and abundant and independent joy. It allowed him to live with contentment and peace. Paul writes in Philippians 4 verse 11 and following, he says, not that I speak with regard to need, for I've learned that whatever state I'm in, therewith to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I believe it's that same type of contentment that divine, abundant, internal joy and gladness that's not dependent upon our circumstances that allows David to rest and then to state the conclusion to his prayer there in verse 8. It allows him to get to verse 8, which says, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Listen, David is consciously counting on the Lord. He is depending upon him in the midst of the tight spot and the cramped space that he found himself in. And the anxiety of his cry back in verse 1 has now been replaced by a deep peace, a peace that is tangible because it allows him to go off to sleep, and it is a peace that is secure because the Lord protects it. So how should we respond? I mean, we've observed how David responds response to, to, to this scenario. How should we respond? Well, I believe that we must thoughtfully consider what our view of God is 
you know, to you, is God just someone who is there to, to give you what you want and to give you all the things that's going to make you happy? I want you to know if your relationship is based upon that, you have sorely misunderstand and misunderstood who God is. On the other hand, I believe these verses call us to be contented and to live a peace-filled and truly joyful life that recognizes that the greatest possession we could ever found will not be will not be stored in our bank accounts. It won't be stacked in our pantries. We won't find it sitting in our garages or our driveways. It won't be stamped on our passports. Rather, the greatest possession that we will ever have will be to recognize that the smile of God rests upon us. And it comes from a life that recognizes and has true abundant peace that results from that divine internal, abundant, and independent joy that the Lord gives us and comes from a relationship that we have with him. Brothers and sisters, when you are in that in possession of, of that, then I want you to know everything else is going to fall into place in your life, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of the opposition that you may face. And that's what I believe the Holy Spirit teaches us through David's words. And it leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. If you find yourself in a tight spot or a cramped space brought on by the pain of rejection and conflict, draw near to the Lord and allow his joy and peace to be that which gives you room and lets you rest. You know, as I close this morning, I just want to point you back to one last thing and then I promise I'll be quiet. When David cried out to, the God, to God back in verse 1, I want you to notice that he prayed to the God of his righteousness. And as I mentioned, that was certainly meant for David that he recognized that God would be the one who declared him right even though his opponents were saying that he wasn't. Well, I want you to know the same is true for each and every one of us. You see, the only way that you and I can truly be at peace, the peace that we read about there in verse 8, and the only way that you and I can truly experience that, that divine, internal, abundant, independent joy that we read about there in verse 7, the only way that we will ever be able to do that is if God declares us righteous. Well, here's what I want you to know. There's not a single one of us in this room that is. In fact, the Bible tells us that any amount of righteousness, any amount of good deeds, any good work that we want to accomplish, when we stand before God and he looks at it and compares it to Christ, it will appear to him as worthless, dirty rags. So what hope do you and I have? The only hope that we have is that one day when we stand before God, and all of us will, when we stand before him, we stand in a righteousness that is not our own, but rather we stand clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He is the God of our righteousness because on the cross, for those who believe the great exchange took place, all of our sin was imputed to Christ and he suffered the penalty of our sin and died as a result of it, paying that penalty. But at the same time, his righteousness was then given to us and when we stand before the Lord, we will stand before him clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That is the only way that anyone will ever be able to truly have 
that kind of joy and gladness of heart and that kind of peace that will allow you to go to sleep. David says, I will both lie down in peace and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You know, one day all of us will lie down and sleep. We will close our eyes forever. And when we do, this same will still be true because we stand in the righteousness of Christ. We know that one day he will raise us up and we will stand before him and we will be able to dwell in safety for all eternity because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it is for the people of God. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for for what it means to us and for how it continues to encourage us even in the midst of the troubles that we face. And Father, I've already listed some of those troubles this morning that people are facing physically, but I know that there are those in this room and those that are listening and watching online this morning that are going through even more difficulties of which I am not aware. Lord, I know that your word is able to speak to all of us in the midst of our trouble. And I am confident that you desire for us to come to you with boldness, because you are the one who can help us in our time of need. And so I pray that we would do that today, particularly if there is one that who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, does not have the confidence, doesn't have the peace and the joy that we've described this morning, that today would be the day that they would repent of their sins and they would trust in you. I pray these things in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen.